welcome back to Trennis Magnus Jabs Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and a couple of days ago, I released an episode that was all about Doomsday, the Superman story entitled Doomsday. And I made a special point of emphasizing the fact that the title of the story is, in fact, Doomsday. It's not the death of Superman. Now, my my gripe with that title, The Death of Superman, really, it's twofold. Number one, the comics that were released to the public, I don't give a damn about the trade paperback. The comics were called Doomsday. So, right there. I mean, that's number one, right? The other thing, though, is that calling that storyline The Death of Superman really only serves to add confusion to the marketplace because there is a story called The Death of Superman. That story is fucking awesome and really that's really that, that's what I want to talk about today. So I don't know why but there's something about these two stories, you know, Doomsday and The Death of Superman that it's like somehow they're linked to each other in my imagination, even though they really have nothing in common, nothing whatsoever. So anyway, I'm not going to go into you know great laborious detail about the uh, the death of Superman, which was originally published in Superman Volume One, Number 149. And the reason I'm not going to go into big laborious detail about it is because back in Episode 66 of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, I joined forces with Michael Bailey. So that we could, together, go into laborious detail about the death of Superman. So, don't really want to rehash everything I said there, because honestly, probably everything that I said in that episode, I more or less stand by. But there are, there are a, a couple of elements of the death of Superman that I think do bear repeating. Or for that matter, maybe I just forgot to mention them the first time around. So... So there's that to think about. So anyway, but basically to take it from the top with the death of Superman, this is an amazingly eye-catching cover. And I don't know if it's just the, you know, the version that I have that, you know, maybe not all of them look this way, but at least the version that I have, it looks like it was colored originally with crayons. And so the 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 kryptonite death ray that Lex Luthor is using on on the the cover of the issue it has this i don't there's just something about it that just seems very sci-fi to me and you know the 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 beam of light that's coming from the uh i don't even know what else to call it except uh, except a death ray and it it's just it just looks very crayon to me you know i don't know so, and you, far from being a criticism, that's actually a compliment. I, I like that look. You know, uh, I think comics, I recognize the technical superiority that Photoshop and all those other programs, I think Paint Shop is something that a lot of pros use. I recognize the, the, the technical superiority of those things, you know, like the technological superiority, but in terms of style, you know? I think this, I think these old uh, uh, 
coloring and and uh, printing processes that comics used to use back in the old days. I think there are instances when that stuff is is actually kind of superior. And in a weird kind of way, I'd almost want to compare it to Star Trek, uh, the original the original series. I almost want to compare it to Star Trek, in as much as if you watch the opening credits of uh, the original series. What you'll see is these star fields with these vast, huge, impossible stars in the background. And the reason that those stars are so freaking big is because of the fact that the showrunners behind Star Trek, they had very good reason to think that a lot of people would be watching episodes of Star Trek first run on black and white TVs. And so people had to be able to distinguish the blackness of space from stars. And so one kind of easy and convenient way of making sure that people can can figure out just what they're even looking at is by having these ginormous stars on the screen, right? And so that was that that's probably the real world explanation behind it. But what ends up happening is that if you're way too young to have watched Uh, Star Trek first run on TV, like I am. Well, you watch it now, and I don't know about anybody else, but to me, there's there's no real... I I honestly don't think I've ever watched a black and white TV, except maybe like a handful of times in my entire life, and that's it, you know? And, And so, you know, for me, I'm not thinking about, wow, I can actually see what I'm looking at. To me, it actually comes off as stylistic intent, all right? There's a style that the show is kind of aiming for that, to me now, is just part of Star Trek. Now, the weird thing is, that's probably not part of the stylistic intent. Probably, like I said, what the showrunners wanted to do was just ensure that people understood that they were looking at a star field. But when you when you move away from the original context in which something came out, the way it ages sometimes is kind of interesting. And like I say, for me, you know, Star Trek, I don't want to go so far as to say it's got this pulpy 1930s thing going for it, at least not intentionally. But if you look at the type of acting that's used on Star Trek or or, or just whatever, all of this maybe creates a style and intent that honestly, may not have been planned by the showrunners. And same thing holds true, to tie it all back, same thing holds true with the uh, color palettes and color techniques that were used in old school comics. You know, that becomes part of the style and tone of these comics, even if that might not have actually been intentional. That's still the end The end goal. So uh, all through, not just Superman number 149, but comics just all throughout this time, you know, comics would have typically very simple color palettes and and they would stick sort of with can, uh, candy colors and the end result is that it it, it kind of creates a, a a style and a tone that is just for lack of a better, better way of putting it comic booky right and i'm not trying to go into uh, basically i'm not trying to overthink this cover you know I'm just saying that, you know, the the it, how it looks like it was it, it was colored with crayons and whatnot, which it may very well have been for all I know. To me, that actually starts working into the style of 
of this comic and just this general era of comics, you know, and far from being a criticism, that's actually a compliment. I like that, you know, and I don't know if this type of color technology would necessarily work very well with modern comics, but I can tell you one thing for sure. It works great with old comics. So anyway, the other thing though about this cover that, that you can't possibly miss is this, this giant banner uh, near the bottom of uh, the, the lower corner of the cover where it says, featuring a great three-part imaginary novel, The Death of Superman. See what happens when Superman dies. And honestly, guys, you need to understand that the reason that this is being hyped up on the cover this way is because this was not necessarily the norm. Yes, there were instances when a when when a uh, a, a comic or a, or rather a uh, a story would occupy an entire comic book issue but that wasn't necessarily the norm for DC especially back in the 60s when or the early 60s when this comic was published that wasn't necessarily business as usual you know so for them to say that this is a great three part novel what they're basically saying is this is the entire comic. This is what you're buying. And it's going to, this story is going to fill up this entire comic because that's how big and special and important this story is, you know? And so if you know anything, like if you're, I don't know, like an eight or nine year old kid when this, when, when this uh, issue came out and you see this on the cover, yeah, I mean, this is going to grab you probably, you know, right by the neck and, and, or by the throat, I should say, and, and say, read me, read me, read me. And that is a very eye-catching cover, not just like the, the layout of it and the coloring, like I say, but the fact that number one, this is the death of Superman. And apparently number two, the death of Superman is such a big fucking deal that it's going to take an entire issue to tell it. And maybe this is one of the reasons why the death of Superman and Doomsday are kind of linked together in my mind because the idea of this is basically for its time, as big a story, the death of Superman is as big and epic in scope a story as Doomsday is. And I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm, I'm comparing things that really shouldn't be compared to one another, but this again speaks to how related to one another these things are for me, you know? So anyway, to finally get into, um, you know, the story proper, basically what we see is, <clears throat> and especially all through part one, is basically it's Lex Luthor turning over a new leaf or pretending to turn over a new leaf uh, so that he can basically put himself in a position where he can, number one, cure cancer, number two, cure heart disease, and basically become the greatest scientist of all time, you know, basically use his, his scientific acumen for the benefit of mankind. And it doesn't really take Superman very long to kind of get swept up on all of this. I mean, as soon as Luther cures cancer, that's it. That's all Superman needs to know. He's pretty much on board the Lex Luthor train right away. And there's never that awkward conversation between the two of them or any kind of a, a, a confrontation or anything like that where Lex has to prove his bona fides to Superman. Superman just pretty much accepts him like right from the get-go. And 
you know, number one, I think the story kind of needs him to do that. But number two, I think that's very much in character for Superman. You know, the loss of his friendship with Lex Luthor is one of the lasting regrets of Superman's entire life. You know, losing his friendship with Lex Luthor is, you could view that in some ways as Superman, or at least Superboy maybe is the better way to put it, but Superboy basically losing the closest thing he ever had to a real peer among mankind. Yeah, he has a relationship with uh, his foster parents, with the Kents, but there is a very clear hierarchy at play there. I mean, yeah, they they do love him, and yes, he is Superboy, but they are still the parents, and he is still the child. They are the authority figures, and he never really talks to them like equals, you know? So there's that. What about Lana Lang? Well, this is somebody that neither Clark nor Superboy could ever completely let his guard down around. You know, Lana never, she was never really, and again, we're speaking to headcanon here, Lana was never clued in on Superboy's or Superman's uh, secret identity of Clark Kent. You know, she never found out about that. And my reading of the Silver Age is that Lana was always that extra little bit more inquisitive, you know? She was always that extra little bit more determined to find out who Superboy's secret identity is. You know, and yeah, she kind of mellowed out later on in life because, I don't know, I mean, like you grow up and the stuff that's important to you whenever you're a teenager, it just becomes less important to you sometimes whenever you're an adult, you know? And that's life. So I, I, I can buy Lana if having kind of a hard-on to find out Superboy's secret identity, but eventually getting over it. You know, she'd get past that, and, and I'd find it easy to believe. But even so, Superboy and Clark can't afford to take a risk. You know, they can't really level with Lana. There's a, there's a level of intimacy that that Superboy just can't allow himself to have with, with with Lana just because of the security concerns that she represents. So there's another one that, that Superboy can't really confide in. As to uh, Pete Ross, Superman never found out. Again, we're speaking to headcanon here. Superman never found out that Pete Ross secretly knew who Clark and Superboy really were. You know, he never found out about that. And so, yeah, maybe they would have had a very different friendship with one another had he known, but they never did in my headcanon, right? And so, you know, we'll never know, but that's that's how things played out. And so you get into, you get into goings on with Lex Luthor, though, and I think it's a fairly defensible interpretation to say that, you know what, the day would have come I don't know when, but the day would have come when Superman eventually entrusted his secret identity to Lex Luthor. If there was anybody he would have been prepared to trust, it would have been Lex. And losing that, basically, yeah, I mean, it affected Lex. There's no question about that. But I think it affected Superman, too. You know, he didn't get to lose that friendship for free. 
And so that, I think, is one of the reasons, or in fact, may even be the reason why Superman was so quick to welcome Lex Luthor back into the fold with open arms, no questions asked. I think it's very telling that, at least to start with, the public struggled a lot more to accept Lex than Superman did. Now, again, the story needs it to be that way. And I understand that. But I think it does go to character. This is a legitimate thing uh, for for Superman to do, you know, to accept Lex without maybe really giving it full consideration. And that ends up being Superman's undoing. Lex uses that Superman's ability to trust, he uses that against him and basically kills him, you know? And it says something about how badly how badly Superman wanted his friendship with Lex Luthor back. But I think it also says something about Lex. I mean, how deep-seated does his hatred go? He hates Superman so much that he cured cancer. He hates Superman so much that he cured heart disease. That's hatred. You know, whenever you hate somebody so much that it drives you to cure cancer just so you can turn around later and stab that guy in the back, if that's not hatred, guys, I don't know what is. You know, and the thing about it is that the reason this story plays for me is that the stakes of all of this are never underplayed, you know? And I, what I mean by that is, you know, this is not a temporary problem for Superman to overcome. Lex outsmarts him, and Superman pays with his life. His death is permanent. You know, there's no magical comeback from the uh, uh, dead trick that Superman can use. Dead is dead, and even Superman can't overcome death in this story. And I like that. You know, I mean, it's not... Look, any idiot who read Superman number 75 had to know, had to know, that the day was going to come, sooner or later, when DC would bring Superman back to life. All right? So... That right there kind of undermines the stakes of the story. But by framing this story as an imaginary story, this basically allows uh, DC Comics to explore what the real, true, permanent death of Superman could be like. And basically pull no punches with it. Basically explore that to its logical end as much as they can in one issue, you know? And honestly, I mean, this is one of those stories that I don't think necessarily would have benefited from uh, multiple issues. I mean, there's a lot of story that's packed just in these pages that we get here, you know? And, but with the caveat that, yes, this is an imaginary story, so no, Superman doesn't really die. He really does die, you know? And... The world mourns, the world grieves, Lois cries, Lana cries, uh, Supergirl ultimately takes Superman's place as uh, uh, mankind's champion, and 
The thing is, yeah, Lex Luthor won in the short term. And I mean the very short term. But the thing is, the damage has been done. You know, it's too late now for Lex to really do anything. I mean, honestly, at this point, all Lex has done is just kill one person. But he hasn't killed the idea. The idea long ago took root in the human psyche. And the citizens of the DC universe are on their way to a bigger, better, brighter tomorrow, all thanks to Superman. And yeah, it sucks that he's gone. We'd love to have him back. But at the end of the day, he was the light that showed the way, and we are finding our way now. And in fact, we're not even finding our way without any help. Supergirl's here. So, you know, in the end, yeah, Lex won, but he's still lost, you know? And there's there's this actually, this really uh, powerful moment. This just gets me every time when, you know, Lex is hanging out with uh, the criminal underworld. And the way it goes in my mind is that these are basically the DC universe equivalent of the five families, you know, so rather than it being just the mafia, this is whatever the equivalent of the five families would be for the DC universe. It's Lex, he's shooting the bull with all of them, and he's telling them all, you know, hey, this is how I did it, and what a fool he was, and isn't he stupid, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, Supergirl, in disguise as Superman, crashes through the wall, destroys Lex's statue, destroys Lex's painting, basically all of these little mementos that he'd created for himself uh, to commemorate the death of Superman. Uh, Supergirl basically wipes all that stuff out, tears off her disguise, and reveals that she's Supergirl, and she she captures Lex and basically flies him into custody. Not police custody. She flies him into Kandorian custody. Now, who's to say what, what punishment Lex Luthor might have faced for what he did, you know, uh, by, by human authorities? But Supergirl never even entertains the notion of turning Lex over to human authorities. The idea being here that Lex killed a Kryptonian, so he's going to be tried by Kryptonians. And I don't know. I mean, I just like that moment just because, number one, this is the big reveal. I mean, up to this point, Supergirl had been Superman's secret weapon. She'd operated in secret. No one even knew that she existed. And this is her big public debut, you know. And what a debut this was. And she even says at the end of the story that, you know, she feels absolutely nothing. You know, there's no happiness about this whatsoever. You know, she always dreamed of the day that she could go public, but now that it's finally here, she doesn't want it, you know? And she's lost something too, you know? And so, I don't know. I mean, it's just, this is a really powerful moment. And to me, I mean, DC, especially in the 60s, won't be remembered for the in-depth, layered, and nuanced uh, character development that they that they would try to do. But, you know, you can, you can read a, a lot between the lines here, and you can kind of get the idea that, yeah, Supergirl, on the one hand, there's a certain contentment that goes with uh, being able to be herself, to be Supergirl openly. But on the other hand, this isn't what she wanted, or at least this isn't how she wanted it, you know? And I don't know. I just, 
I, I like that. You know, that it's, it's very, especially for Supergirl's participation, it's very bittersweet. But one of the things that hit me as I reread the story before recording just now is we see a fair bit of Superman in this story. We see a fair bit of Supergirl. We see a fair bit of Lex Luthor, of Lois Lane, of Perry White, of Jimmy Olsen, etc., etc. We even get uh, cameo appearances from uh, Lucy Lane, from the Legion of Superheroes, from Lori Lamaris, uh, from a bunch of different characters, you know? The one character that we never see anywhere in this story is Clark Kent. And if I've got a quibble, and believe me, this is just a quibble, but if I've got a quibble about this story, it's that there's so much that's left on the table with Clark Kent. You know, did the world ever find out that Superman and Clark are one and the same? Um, how did the Daily Planet, if so, how did the, you know, or rather, if not, how did the Daily Planet staff react to Clark just suddenly not being around anymore? You know, I mean, I think we can, you know, we could realistically guess that Supergirl probably would have revealed to the world that Superman had been Clark Kent. But I don't know. I mean, just seeing that moment, you know, whatever form it would have taken, I would have really enjoyed that. So I don't know. Now, it's been forever since I listened to episode 66, so it's kind of hard to remember now. But I honestly don't know if I talked at any great length in, in that episode about Kurt Swan's art here. But guys, <clears throat> Kurt Swan's art, as it was in the early 1960s, is very different from what he was creating in the, especially in the 1970s, you know? And it was just, it's recognizably the same artist, don't get me wrong, but... And I'm not, and I'm not even saying that one of them is better than the other. I'm just saying that there are some very obvious differences. And here again, I mean, the 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 art style that we're seeing here in the Death of Superman, it just seems very Silver Age to me. You know, it, it seems very science uh, fairy tale to me. You know, and the the stuff that he would create in the 1970s was typically a little bit more grounded whereas this just seems a little i, I don't want to say science fiction but uh, a little more science fairy tale and uh slightly more cartoony in a weird kind of way and i just i i really cherish it and in fact there's this moment this is um the very beginning of uh, part 3 of the story uh, the the uh, miniature splash, the little title bar here, it basically shows Superman lying in state as this huge uh, group of people is filing past to pay their final respects. And there are some obvious characters uh, that would be filing past in a Superman comic. I mean, you've got uh, Linda Lee, you've got Perry White. You've got Jimmy Olsen, Laurie Lamaris, uh, Lois Lane, Lucy Lane. But further back in line, you see Batman, Aquaman, Green Arrow. I think this is supposed to be Wonder Woman here. You see The Flash. And I don't know that Kurt Swan got to draw those characters very often in comics. Oh, Robin's in there too. I actually missed that. 
so yeah, Robin's in there too. But I don't know that Kurt Swan got to draw these characters very often. And so, I don't know. I mean, they're really only just here on this one page. I don't think they're actually in the... Uh, well, you this isn't even really a funeral that he's having. It's basically Superman lying in state. And that's that's pretty much it. But we never actually see the, the proper funeral. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it's just... I kind of like the idea of literally the entire universe is turning out to pay their last respects to the Man of Steel. I dig that. You know, because... It just to me, it just kind of cements how important Superman is, was, and should always be to the DC universe, you know. And um, even on the last page, you know, um, the next to last panel, we see Supergirl and Crypto flying past a Superman memorial, and uh, well, it's actually his gravesite. It's a it's a memorial slash uh, gravesite. It says, "Here lies Superman, treacherously slain by Lex Luthor." He's standing on a, it's a statue of Superman standing on a platform and he's standing in front, a, uh, in front of a, 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 I don't know, a statue, I guess, of the world, like the planet Earth. And I kind of like that, you know, because it basically is a reminder that this is the way that mankind viewed Superman. This is the way the entire universe viewed Superman. He was Earth's protector. And it just really does pay very solid tribute to to this character. And one of the things that I would actually kind of like to see is, I don't know who the hell would write a story like this, but one of the things I'd actually kind of like to see is sort of like a sequel to this story, maybe like 10 or 20 years down the line. You know, Supergirl and Crypto, they've been doing their thing. You know, they are, in effect, Superman's replacement now. And what is the world like? you know, 10 years or 20 years or however, however long after Superman's death, you know, um, what's happened. And I just, it's one of those things that I almost think that some sequels are actually better left to the imagination. But part of me really is curious, you know, like what this would be like, you know, like how that story might play out. You know, I don't know if I'd necessarily want like an ongoing series or something like that, but you you never know. Maybe someday Mark Wade, you know, somebody will tap him on the shoulder and said, hey, Mark, you feel like writing a uh, a post-death of Superman story? So I don't know. It's It's nice to think about, if nothing else. I mean, there aren't very many people that I would really trust with something like that. I think Mark Wade may actually be the only guy, but um Anyway, I don't know. Like I say, maybe some things are just better left to the imagination. But overall, this is the way that I think that if Superman has to die, this is the way that I, to me, this is the definitive death of Superman story. Um, his death is meaningful. It it has, a, the, the tragedy of it has an effect upon literally everybody. The entire world is affected by this. And it's, on the one hand, yes, it's a tragedy, but on the other hand, the people, humanity, we will always have Superman's example to look back to. You know, that's always going to be an ideal to which we can strive. And a good reminder of that will always be Supergirl and Crypto, you know? And I don't know. I mean, this to me is the way that this type of story needs to needs to be done, you know? And... 
you know, people can make fun of the imaginary story concept all they want, but at the end of the day, you know, it is the perfect door for, or I should say the perfect accessory for headcanon, you know? Um, in my headcanon, actually now's probably not the time to get into it, but suffice it to say, this is not, this story, it's, it's an interesting kind of a what if sort of a thing, but to me, this story is not part of my headcanon, you know? But if somebody wanted this to be there, to be in their headcanon, that this is the canonical end of, you know, their conceptualization of the Silver Age Superman, Dude, you could do a lot worse. I'll tell you that. This is a this story is just fucking amazing. And I I like the idea of the just the epic scope and the emotional grounding that this story has, you know? And to me, I mean, it, it seems kind of cheap to say that uh, this story is is better than Doomsday. Because that almost gives the impression that I don't like Doomsday, and I do. I, I, I love I, I love that story. You know, it that that was very important to comic book collectors in the early '90s. You know, but in terms of what I want from a Superman story, well, if Superman has to die, this is the way that I'd like to see it happen. You know, and so um, overall. I love this story, and to me, it's worthy of canonization, even if it's not actual continuity. Does that make sense? So, I don't know. But this is definitely worth a read, and it's been reprinted so many times, it can't be that difficult to find it. So, all in all, highly recommended, and if you've never read it before, uh, give it a shot. So, anyway. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me this time. So, bye everybody, I will see you next time.